morning, Frontline family. Welcome here this morning. I'm excited to be with you all today. What a beautiful time we've just had worshiping our King of Kings and our Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. Wouldn't you agree? We thank the Lord for the privilege to gather as His church to worship Him in this way. And as we now move into the Word, we are so grateful that we have the opportunity to magnify our understanding of Him as we study His eternal truths. Church, before we get started with the Word this morning, can we just acknowledge Him with another great shout of praise? We serve a mighty God. We serve a saving God. Amen? We love and adore Him so much. Let's pray together. Father God, we come to You this morning and we thank You for the privilege together in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, as we now focus on your word, we ask that you would not only bring us the knowledge we need for life and for godliness, but that by your spirit, you would prepare our hearts to be sensitive enough to receive it and to make it applicable to our lives so that we would be inspired not only to be hearers of the word, but that we would become doers also. Walking out the perfect plan that you have predestined for each of us, and in so doing, bringing you the honor and glory you so richly deserve. We pray this in Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. Well, church, it's a privilege for me to be with you this morning, and a privilege once again to preach God's life-changing word. Today is Pentecost Sunday, which, as you know, is a very significant day in the Christian calendar, because among many other things, it represents the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, where the, the apostles were filled with power from on high, and when the New Testament church was born. The church of Jesus Christ would not be in existence today if this significant event didn't occur. But just as Jesus promised before he left this earth and ascended back into heaven, the Holy Spirit was sent to empower his church and the life of every believer for the work of ministry until he returns. Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now church, just to let you know from the get-go, today is not going to be your typical Pentecost Sunday type of message. Yes, it's going to be a message on the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, but what we're going to be looking at today is a portion of Scripture in Matthew chapter 12 that speaks about the unpardonable sin, this unforgivable sin, hence the title of my message today, What is the Unpardonable Sin? Now, I know that sounds like a bit of a heavy topic, and it is, but what we're going to speak about today is more directional and liberating than you may think. It speaks to believers and non-believers. It speaks to the true condition of a man or a woman's heart. And if you've ever had any question about what the unpardonable sin really is, then I believe that will be settled today once and for all. But let me not get ahead of myself just yet. I heard a story about a pastor that was speaking to his congregation one Sunday and he wanted to make sure that people were really getting the message that he was trying to convey. So he asked his congregation, Church, can you tell me what you must do before you can receive forgiveness from God? One of the congregants was just about to give up and give this 
theological answer when a little boy right at the back of the church said, to receive forgiveness, you first have to sin. The pastor chuckled because he was, the answer he was looking for was more in the lines of, you need to ask God to forgive you of your sin and then turn from it. But he said, young man, you are absolutely right. Before you can receive God's forgiveness, you first have to sin. And just to make sure I'm speaking to the right audience this morning, how, how many of you have ever sinned before? Raise your hands. Okay, good. That's, that's every single one of us, right? We're all sinners. We are all sinners, but I've got some good news for you this morning. God forgives us of our sins, right? What is evident right throughout the Bible, from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation, is that we serve a forgiving God. Amen? Jesus himself gave his life as a sacrifice so that we could be forgiven of our sins eternally. David said in Psalm chapter 86 verse 5, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive, and you are abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. In Exodus chapter 34, as God passed in front of Moses, he said to him, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And then Micah, who was reflecting on this great truth, said in Micah chapter 7, Who is a God like you? Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You again will have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. And isn't that such a fantastic picture of how far God removes our sins from his remembrance once we confess them to him and ask for his forgiveness. I mean, do you know how deep the ocean is, church? Just a bit of trivial knowledge for you this morning. The deepest part of the ocean is just over 11,000 meters, 11 kilometers. It's so deep that it is believed that nothing can survive and, and thrive at those depths. And it's a really good illustration for us and a reminder that we should never choose to remember what God has chosen to forget. Amen? What God has buried, we should never be in the habit of digging up. It says in Psalm 103, verses 11 and 12, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. The only sin that God will not forgive is the sin that we will not confess. It says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not some righteousness, not most of your unrighteousness, all unrighteousness. Church, let it be settled in our hearts today that we serve a forgiving God. Now, having said that, and I don't want to sound like I'm being contradictory this morning, Having said that, we, Jesus does warn of an unforgivable sin. If you've been a Christian long enough and you've read through the Gospels a couple of times, you either would have asked yourself the question, 
Or you would have heard someone else ask the question, what is the unpardonable sin? What does it mean to, to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit? There's a lot of misconception about this portion of Scripture, and many people live in condemnation because they don't really understand what it means. I've listened to some documentaries where people say, you know, I've sold my, doll, my soul to the devil so that I can have a certain life or so that I can fa find fame and fortune. And because I've done that, you know, there's, there's been this exchange between me and Satan. And because I've done that, I can never come back to God and my soul forever belongs to Satan. But listen, I don't believe or don't know how biblical that is because there's no mention of someone selling their soul in the Bible. It's more Hollywood than it is biblical. Yes, there are those who suffer under direct satanic control, and there are those who have devoted themselves to the devil's work, but there are many examples where the power of God prevails over Satan's slavery. But again, having said that, Jesus does warn of an unpardonable sin. He warns of a point of no return. So let's get into what this really means then, because this is important for you as a believer in Jesus Christ to really understand. And I would say, extremely important for you if you're a non-believer. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 12, and put your finger next to verse 31. In this portion of Scripture, the Bible speaks about a specific sin of blasphemy that is committed against a certain person of the Trinity. And I say that specifically because Jesus makes mention, as you'll hear in a moment, that it's not against the Father, and it's not against himself, Jesus, but this is specifically blasphemy committed against the Holy Spirit. Let's read together from verse 31. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. But the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. Either in this world or the world hereafter. Now, I deliberately read you verses 31 to 32 first because that's the conclusion and the, the consequence of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. But we need to back up just a little bit to verse 22 to get the context of how you actually get to this point of no return. This is what it says. Then one was brought to him, that being Jesus, who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him. So that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? Now, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, that's another name for Satan, the ruler of the demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts. I want you to underline those words in your Bible. But Jesus knew their thoughts. And said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. Now, just a side note here, when he uses the word kingdom, he's not speaking about the kingdom of God. He's speaking about the satanic kingdom or kingdoms plural of this world. 
That's what he's addressing. Verse 26, if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Well, how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. Jesus says, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does, does not gather with me scatters abroad. So let me set the context up for you as to what's going on in the story. The scribes, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and all the religious hierarchy during the three and a half years of Jesus' ministry on the earth were constantly trying to prove him wrong. They were hot on his heels all the time, and they would criticize, they would attack, they would go after, and they would not agree with a single thing, let me try that again, a single thing that he said or, or he did. You see, they were so envious of him because, ironically, he was bad for their religious business. They were insanely envious and jealous of his growing popularity, so much so that it ultimately drove them to have him crucified. And why were they so envious of him, you may ask? Because the common people loved Jesus. He was understandable. He was approachable. He was compassionate. Jesus was everything the religious elite were not. In fact, the Bible tells us in Mark chapter 12 that the common people heard him gladly. Jesus very seldomly spoke over anyone's head. He broke it down so that most people could understand what he was saying. Jesus was even understood by children, but get this, the greatest intellects of the time were challenged by his words. And you want to know why they were challenged by his words? Because they had already purposed in their hearts to reject him. In John chapter 19, verses 14 to 16, just before they take Jesus away to be crucified, the Roman leader, Pontius Pilate, makes one last plea to the angry mob. And he says to the Jews, listen to this, he says to the Jews, behold your king. Behold your king, but they cry out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified, and they took Jesus and led him away. And get this, church, these were the representatives of God to the people and the people to God for Israel. And they say, Caesar's our king. I mean, they're out of their minds. They've lost it, right? And you may say, why is this so important? Because listen, please get this, church. This is not denial. These guys would not deny Jesus Christ like Peter did. And it wasn't just a, a moment or a season of weakness that they were going through. No, this is not denial. This is absolute flagrant rejection of the doctrine of God and of the person of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. And church, please mark this down because some of you feel like you, you've committed the unpardonable sin. 
Because at some point in your life, you knew Christ was asking you to stand up and say something or get up and do something, and you didn't do it. And you feel like you've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. This is not what has been spoken of here. Right? If that's how you're thinking, you haven't. Yes, in a moment of weakness, you may have denied Christ, but that's forgivable. Just ask Peter, right? No, there's a big difference here. I'm talking about rejection, not denial. You could say, well, pastor, what about that time when I was an unbeliever and I I cursed God and I blamed him for everything that was going wrong in my life? Or that time that I said this concept of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, that's just absolutely ridiculous and I don't even believe he's real. Here's the difference. You said what you said, but it was not yet a doctrine of your belief system. You were absolutely ignorant about the power and the mercy and the grace and the word and the will of God. But you see, these scribes and Pharisees that rejected Jesus, they were the custodians of the Bible itself. Right? They were the custodians of the word of God. Something you need to understand about scribes and Pharisees, if you don't know already, a Pharisee was a man who dedicated his entire life to the study of Scripture. And he took a solemn vow before three witnesses that he would spend every waking moment of his life obeying the Ten Commandments. That's not to say that they succeeded, because clearly they did not, but that's at least what they tried to do. Now, there were some good Pharisees, not many, but Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and he came to Jesus at night and became a believer. But by and large, these Pharisees, these religious experts had hard hearts. And here's what's ironic. These Pharisees spent their time studying the Word of God. Now, a scribe was someone who wrote down the Scripture. They didn't have printing presses back then, so they would write out the Word of God by hand. That was their job. Which meant that they spent the entire day and night in Scripture carefully writing it, and the Pharisees spent their entire life studying it. Yet these men immersed in such a spiritual endeavor at hard hearts that were so hard, they attributed to the devil that which was being done by God. And this should be a strong warning to us that if we're not careful, the church can become a very dangerous place. Pastor, what are you saying? I thought the church was a a good place. It's a safe place. This is a place where we honor God, right? This is a place where the word of God goes out, where we experience his presence. But here's the thing. You have a choice as to how you will react to that. My hope is that we're all here today because we want to grow spiritually, that we want to worship the Lord and learn more about Christ. But if you've come here out of mere duty and obligation and you're sort of sitting there with with your arms crossed and you're a bit skeptical, you've got the skeptical look on your face and you're just sussing everything and everyone out and questioning what's going on all the time, Or you're thinking, if I go to church today and I can sin a little more this week because I've done my duty for God, careful now, because listen, the same sun that softens the wax hardens the clay. 
Sometimes the most hardened people can be in the church, not outside of it. You know, we immediately assume the person who is, is having their first drink this morning, the same time that we're gathering as the church, or the person that committed adultery last night, we just assume they are so far from God. And maybe they are. But they may be closer to getting right with God than some people who go to church every Sunday. And listen, I'm not advocating that it's okay to be given to drink or to commit sexual immorality, no. But the person that is currently heavily into their sin may be saying, you know what, my life is miserable. What am I doing in this place? Or why am I living my life this way? They may be so desperate about getting their life right with God, and maybe they will act on it. But the person who's sitting in church saying, I know it all, I've heard it all, I'm so spiritual, the problem is that they're getting a hard heart because they're arrogant. And they're actually resistant to the work that the Spirit wants to do in their life. And they may even reject the work the Holy Spirit is doing in someone else's life or within the church itself. And look, I'm not saying that to anyone here today, right? But let us be so aware because it can be easier to get a hard heart in the church than it can to get it outside. You can become very judgmental in church and your heart can become hard. But the Lord says to us in Ezekiel chapter 36, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. That's what the Holy Spirit does in the life of a believer. Amen. These scribes and Pharisees were not doubting Jesus because they merely disagreed with him. They did not reject Jesus for lack of evidence or because he was not consistent with what he said. They were hardened against him. So when we talk about the sin being beyond Christ's forgiveness, we're talking about what they had in their hearts, what it is that they really believed and what they chose to reject. And church, this brings us to one of the most important questions, if not the most important question that every single human being has to answer at some point in their life. You want to know what it is? Who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? Church, that's the most important question you'll ever be asked. Who is Jesus Christ? And look, you better have the answer. If you don't have the answer, you need to stay tuned to this message because God will only accept one answer. And you may be thinking at this point, Pastor, what does this question have to do with blaspheming the Holy Spirit uh, or co- uh, committing the unpardonable sin? Because these religious leaders were angry with Jesus and, and sinning against Jesus, weren't they? Church, it has absolutely everything to do with it. And yes, they were aiming their sin at Jesus, but here's the thing. The vehicle or the minister of salvation in this world to you and I and to everyone else that has ever lived in this world since Jesus ascended back into heaven and sent the helper is none other than the person of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will come and exalt all that Christ has done and the words that he has spoken. 
He also said in John chapter 15, verse 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And so by, de by denying and rejecting Jesus, these religious leaders were denying the very ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit. They were in the position of being beyond Christ's forgiveness because they were committing and staying committed to death, a sin that is unpardonable. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29, it says, Just think how much worse the punishment will be for those who have trampled on the Son of God and have treated the blood of the covenant which made us holy as if it were common and unholy, and have insulted and disdained the Holy Spirit who brings God's mercy to us. Church, the Holy Spirit's mission is to convince us of our sins and to bring God's mercy to us. And to reject the mission of the Spirit is to say no to the Spirit. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit represents the conscious denouncing and rejection of God and His mercy to mankind. So let me come back to the question. Who is Jesus Christ? Better question yet, who is Jesus Christ to you? Now if your answer is not the right answer, your answer is just as bad as the scribes and Pharisees. And if you die without having the right answer, then you are exactly guilty of committing the unpardonable sin. If you remain in that way, you will die in your sins and you will be outside of the bounds of Christ's redemption and Christ's salvation. And listen up, everyone. Some of you have been lied to. That there's some form of salvation after death. Or that maybe that you're going to be reincarnated and come back as a cow or a cat or something like that and you can make your life right. That's no way in the Bible. That's made up by people, and that is a lie from the pit of hell. It's very important that you understand that. As we start to build this argument, church, there's a big difference between ignorance and willful ignorance. If you're ignorant because you don't know, that can be fixed. But if you know the way and you're rejecting the way, that's something completely different. That's called willful ignorance. Let me put it to you this way. Every human being knows inside that they are lost to some degree or another. Right? We've all either been there or we are there right now. They know they're lost. And they know that their life is incomplete. Inside of every person that is sincerely thinking about their life and their family's lives and their children's lives, there's this thought of there's got to be more to life. Right? There's got to be life after death. If they're really honest with themselves, these thoughts plague them because surely there's more to this life than, than just this, right? Do you know what? Those thoughts are from God. And faith normally moves forward to find the answer. But this unpardonable sin that we're talking about today is actually faith in reverse. Because it sees the answer. It sees the foundation of who faith should be placed in, which is Jesus, and it pulls away from him. It recoils back from him. 
In John chapter 8, verses 23, Jesus speaks to this condition of rejection. He's addressing the scribes and Pharisees, and he says, he says to them, you are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I say to you, you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You know, some people will say, oh, you know, pastor, I believe there are many roads to heaven, right? I have my truth, you have your truth, you stick to your truth, and I'll stick to my truth. You're rejecting Christ. And listen, I don't want you to believe it the way that I believe it. I want you to believe it the way that God put it. Don't think for a single moment that this is my truth and this is my message. This is not my message. This is his message. Amen? It says in John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 17 says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. This is not a message of condemnation. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe in is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. If your response to that is, come on, pastor, I don't believe that. And I'll never believe that no matter how many times you tell me you are rejecting Christ and you've reached the point of no return. It's just as unforgivable as the Pharisee's sin against the Holy Spirit. And if you die in that condition, you will enter eternity having committed the unpardonable sin. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says, and it is appointed for men to die how many times? Three times? Can you come back again? It is appointed for man to die once and after this, the judgment. So I'm going to ask you one more time today. Who is Jesus Christ to you? Listen, the fact that you're here today means that it's very unlikely that you've reached the point of no return and committed the unpardonable sin. Because if that was you, you'd probably be cursing every word that I've said this morning. Very unlikely. Probably impossible. But you know, church, that doesn't mean that everyone here today has answered the question. Who is Jesus Christ to you? And, and what are you going to do with that question? True story. During World War II, a United States battleship aircraft in aircraft carrier and some smaller boats were patrolling the waters of the northern Atlantic Ocean in search of German U-boats. And on one specific afternoon, several pilots took off from the carrier and were told to be back by a certain time. But the leader of the squadron of the four planes purposefully stayed out longer because he felt that with just a little bit more time that he could score an, an impressive victory against the enemy. But as the sun was setting, a German armada entered the area and the American fleet was now in trouble because they were outgunned and outnumbered. So the commander-in-chief had to order radio silence so that they wouldn't be discovered by the German armada. Meanwhile, those four planes that were out on their mission were coming back. 
they were very low on fuel and needed to land urgently. So they made these desperate calls to the aircraft carrier to turn on the lights of the landing strip. But because radio silence had been ordered, they would not turn on the lights and disclose their position to the Nazis. And so as the story is recorded, these men, or the men in the aircraft carrier, stood by in horror as they watched four American planes crash into the icy waters of the Atlantic. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and I'll start to close with this. It says, We then as workers together with him also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Do not treat God's grace cheaply. For he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. God says today is the day of salvation. The lights are still on. The radio waves are still open. But there's going to come a day when the Lord, the commander-in-chief, will order radio silence. The lights will be switched off. And people will not be able to find their way home. You may say, you know what, I'll, I'll just do it later on in my life. I don't want to be a Christian just yet. Right? I still want to mess around. I still want to have some fun, you know. Like you can't have fun as a Christian. You know what, I'll, I'll commit my life to Jesus when I'm really old, like when I'm in my 40s or something. <laughs> or you know what, I'll commit my life to Jesus when I'm, when I'm, I'm on my deathbed. Are you sure about that? Here's my concern. Maybe by the time you're 40 or 50, your heart will be so hard that you, you won't care anymore. You may even be sitting there today and thinking to yourself, Pastor, you don't know what I've done in my life and, and how much I've really messed up. God will not accept me based on my past and how flagrantly I've denied him before. If that's you, I'll repeat two verses that I read to you earlier. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And in Psalm 103, it says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. But listen, to receive this forgiveness, you first have to commit your life to Jesus Christ. So if that's you today, I want to give you an opportunity in a moment to answer the most important question that you will ever be asked. Who is Jesus Christ to you? Maybe you've, you know, you've gone through this journey of life and you thought, you know, I can do this all on my own. You know what, I was thinking about it yesterday. When you're in your 20s and 30s, you feel invincible, right? You think you're going to live forever. When you get to your 40s and 50s, there's a little bit more doubt in your mind. You know, I think this, this body doesn't work the way that it used to. I'm not as invincible. And when you talk to your parents that are in their 70s, then you know you're not invincible, right? <laughs> the truth is, none of us know if we're going to see another tomorrow. Amen. Amen. Today is the day of salvation. So if that's you today, I want to give you the opportunity to commit your life to Jesus Christ. 
Right? And it's not just a, a, a commitment by saying, I put in my hand or I say a prayer, because I do want to say a prayer with you. And it is those things. But it is about you taking yourself off the throne of your life and enthroning the Lord Jesus Christ. As you turn your life around and walking according to God's commands. Not a perfect life, because none of us are perfect, right? But it's happening in your heart that you want to please God in everything that you do. I want to ask anyone that's here today and say, listen, maybe I've denied Jesus in my past. Maybe I didn't understand that he is the only way to heaven. But the Lord is speaking to me this morning. He's speaking to the depths of my heart, and I want to give my life to him. I want to make that stand for myself. I want to make that stand for my family. And I want to commit my life to the one and only true Savior, Jesus Christ. If that's you, I want to ask you to take the bold step and come and stand in front with me. And I'd love to pray together with you and start this journey of faith in, in committing your life to Jesus Christ. If that's you this morning, do not wait another day. Today is the day of salvation. It'll be the most important decision that you will ever make in your entire life.